0: Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by...
1: Nick Solheim, the COO of American
0: Moment. And we have another fantastic episode for you guys today. We're going a little bit different now. Uh, in the past, we've had on uh, think tank presidents, we've had on scholars, we've had on uh, friends of ours, board members, uh, and uh, you know, even just recently, we had on uh, the rest of our team. Uh, we're going to foray into something a little bit different now. Today we have on Joe Kent, who's a candidate for Congress. But before we get to that, I uh, just want to bring up a couple of things that we have cooking here at American Moment. Uh, if you go to our website, AmericanMoment.org, you can find everything that we're up to. You can find appearances that we're doing on other shows, whether it's, uh, you know, I was on Steve Bannon's War Room recently, the First Things podcast, and so on. Uh, you can find uh, information about Summit, a conference on American statecraft. You can sign up for the interest form there. We promise we have more information coming very, very soon, we're putting the final pieces in place. And you can also find Amcanon, which is our aggregator of the best books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, newsletters, and more uh, that explains how to think about the world that we do. Uh, that's constantly getting updated. Jake, our chief creative officer, and the editor of Canon, is constantly adding new stuff there. So please make sure you check it out. Nick, is there anything else they should be paying attention to?
1: Uh, you should get more people to like, rate, Subscribe the podcast. And seriously, send us questions that you yeah. want us to answer on air. We haven't gotten nearly as many uh, as I as I thought we would. Um, if you send us a screenshot of your five-star review to podcast at Americamoment.org uh, that comes directly to me. So I will make sure that provided it is not lewd, uh, we will answer it on the pod. Um, and you can also provide the question within the review itself. Um, I'm keeping an eye on uh, Apple Podcasts um i don't think spotify is like a very good ratings feature but anyway if you have questions for us uh feel free to drop them there we'll talk about them in the intro we didn't have any for this week
0: well actually we did uh someone asked a question that got asked in the guest episode itself um yeah and so uh by rating five stars you can even help us uh answer or ask some questions of the guests that we have on and boy do we have an incredible guest for you guys today uh joe kent um, is coming off of decades of truly, truly patriotic service in our military, uh, in both uh, you know ground forces as a Green Beret all the way through uh, a, a small cent at CIA. He uh, uh, was slated to be part of a Trump term too, if we had had that, um, but truly one of the most exciting people um, that is uh, active in politics uh, today. I know that a lot of our listeners were absolutely enthused when they heard that he would be coming on. Uh, and he's a candidate for Congress now in Washington's third congressional district. As a disclaimer, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, so we don't take any official stands on candidates. Um, or political races, but we thought that this was an informative uh, and exciting episode. Joe talks about his experience in the military, where he thinks that American foreign policy is going awry, the uh, political commissars that are being appointed to lead it, how we can restore manufacturing to America, and talks a little bit about service and um, his late wife, Shannon, uh, as we tape today on Memorial Day. So it was an absolutely stellar episode. Nick, what'd you think?
1: He's He's just a really cool guy uh, it's funny uh, we, we were talking about this just before we recorded the intro that if you um, if you google Joe Kent the first result that pops up is uh, Joe Kent Superman um, <laughs> he does indeed look like Superman uh, and you know uh, ladies who watch the pod uh, you're gonna want to turn on YouTube for this one <laughs> um, so yeah it was it was it really it was a fantastic episode um, Joe Kent's a really good guy I think uh, you know, he, he he definitely has some unique opinions uh, about, at least unique, you know, in Washington, D.C., about foreign policy and about, um, you know, our involvement militarily abroad. Uh, he has some very important questions that, that need to be asked uh, of the foreign policy and military elites uh, here in Washington. And uh, yeah, just on around like really good episode. Joe's a super good guy um, and we're excited to have him
0: on. So make sure you stick through to the end. And now we'll go to Joe Kent. Thanks for coming on the show, Joe.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: The thing we love to do with all of our guests to begin with is have them explain how they got to the point where they are now. You're now running for Congress. Uh, How'd you end up here?
2: Well, it's not the typical story, I don't think. So I had... uh, Pretty long career in the military, did 20 years, intended to serve another 20 or so in the CIA. So I retired on a, on a Friday and then uh, sworn at the CIA on a Monday. Intended to make that my, my second career. Um, so right after that, my late wife deployed to Syria to go fight against the caliphate. Um, she deployed in uh, December of 2018. Right after that, we kind of reached our military objective in Syria. We had defeated the territorial caliphate and President Trump attempted to get our troops out. Um, That's when the deep state essentially turned against him. Uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis, um, State Department officials like Brett McGurk and a bunch of other unelected bureaucrats ran to the media, resigned publicly, and then did the slow roll at the Pentagon to keep our troops there. About a month later, tragically, my wife was killed by a suicide bomber um, along with three other great Americans. So, At that moment, I realized I had to step away from putting myself in physical danger because my wife and I have uh, two small children. So I resigned from the CIA, um, moved back to um, the Northwest, to Washington State, and then from there, intended to just raise my kids and and contribute as I could uh, here and there. Seeing the way that the media and then the... I'd say the military industrial and then like the foreign policy community really turned on President Trump and were attempting to portray it that he had somehow done this completely ignorant um, move by trying to get our troops out of Syria. I felt compelled to speak out because from my perspective as a guy on the ground, he had gotten it right. So I spent my entire adult life fighting in the Middle East. And I was very frustrated with the way that the uh, DC elites felt that we just needed to be in the Middle East forever, regardless of political party. First it was Bush, then it was Obama. Trump came in and he said, hey, we are going to crush the caliphate because it's a clear and present danger, but then we're getting out. And that really, that was the right answer based on my time on the ground. So I felt like it was my obligation to start speaking out. So I did that. I, I got on uh, as many TV shows as I could, wrote op-eds here and there, and then kind of became an unconventional advisor. Um, I had the opportunity to meet President Trump, and I, I told him what I just said, that he got it right. And then he wasn't going to hear it from a lot of the generals um, or people at the senior ranks and because Trump was an unconventional guy he then put me in in contact with people on his staff and I I did some unofficial advising on uh, Syria Iraq Iran that portfolio um, and so I was going to go back and work in a second Trump administration um, but then 2020 happened and we all saw what ha- what happened the, the alliance of you know big tech mainstream media and then the ground game that the Democrats had with the the mail-out votes we saw the election pretty much gets stolen from us. You know, if we if we spoke out about it, we would be labeled as terrorists or insurrectionists. So I knew I wanted to do something. I never wanted to go into politics. I never envisioned myself doing that, but I, I, would, I th- thought I was gonna get active, you know, maybe locally, be a PCO or something like that. And then my representative, who I voted for, who was supposed to be a Republican, voted for the impeachment of President Trump. And then she volunteered to be the Democrat star witness. And so to me, that was a very clear call to action. I was like, well, I can sit here and pretty much Watch the country get taken from us on every single level, and then watching what Joe Biden was intending to do with HR1 and just radically remake the country. I just said, Hey, I, I need to do something. And so I threw my name in the hat. I googled, How do you run for Congress? Um, I, I hit up the few people that I knew uh, in the administration and said, Hey, I'm doing this. Um, let me know what you think. And you know, if you can put me in touch with different folks here and there, that would help. But uh, it was just kind of off the races. Did a uh, an announcement video from my little home office and, and then just started calling as many representatives from
1: the local government as I could to get in front of people and, and let them hear my message. So, there are a lot of veterans in Congress, and the administration, you know, at the Pentagon who have been really supportive of these endless wars over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say is the big difference in, in, you know, military experience, but also opinion between you uh, and them? How did you guys land at such different outcomes?
2: I think a lot of the people that are the most vocal, that we hear from the most, they're, we hear from them for a reason because they're saying exactly what the establishment wants them to say, Republican or Democrat. So if you want to be successful in DC and you're a military, by and large an officer, uh, military officer, you land somewhere at the Pentagon, you do some key command slots, but then you know once you're at the Pentagon, you know that your job is to cont- keep the machine moving forward. So if there's no will from the top levels, to get us out of these wars, your job is to continue to send troops over, even if it's not effective, you just keep that big machine going. There's an incentive system outside the military for that too, with the military industrial complex, you can get put on the board of that defense contractor or something like that. Um, And so I think a lot of it too, uh, with my generation, with the global war on terror generation, is there's also a good deal of, of hubris. Like we don't want to admit that we went over, we served and we sacrificed and we lost so many people for nothing. I think there is a lot of people that actually have good intentions. They just think, hey, if I just if we just do one more year, if we just do one more combat rotation, if we just try counterinsurgency again really really hard, one more surge. We that that's the thing because most of these guys, I think it's pride. They have their entire Professional portfolio and reputation staked on being a part of these wars and it's it's really hard to say that you committed Sacrificed and lost to something um, Like we did in the war. It's hard to back off and be like hey, we we didn't do this right We got it wrong and there's political reasons behind that, you Mm -hmm. know, if you're being honest But as a professional soldier myself, I I have a really hard time with it, you know But if we're being honest, like what have we really gained by being in these places? So I, I think Hearing from the guys that have been on the ground level, like I had a kind of a unique military career. I was an enlisted guy for 11 years and the rest of it, I was a a warrant officer and that kept me on the ground level the entire time. I never was stationed at the Pentagon or any of that type of stuff. My whole whole career was ground truth. And when you're there on the ground, you can't make the compelling case that what we're doing is working.
0: People uh, who enlisted kind of in your generation around uh, 9-11, I can't even begin to imagine what the emotional tumult that living through that point in time, being someone who could serve, choosing to do so, and then coming to the conclusion that maybe the wars we engaged in weren't, weren't the best idea. Um, how did you and your peers just at a personal level sort of think through that uh, over the course of the, the 10 to 11 years that you served? So initially,
2: right after 9-11, emotions were hot, obviously, and we were all very grateful to be in the military. I I had just gotten the Special Forces when that happened, so we knew that we were going to go get to do something to strike back against what had just attacked America. So I think initially, there was a lot of, I'd say, blind faith that our leaders were pointing us in the right directions because the military, we have the greatest military in the world, but if it's not pointed in the right direction, not given the right guidance, then it can be all for naught, and I think that's been one of the biggest lessons of the global war on terror. So I uh, was in the special forces course uh, right after 9/11. So I missed the initial push into Afghanistan, and then we were pretty much solely focused on Iraq. I went to 5th Special Forces Group, which is regionally oriented to the center of the Middle East. So Iraq was kind of became our baby for the Iraq War proper. Um, and so initially, right after the, the Saddam regime fell. I think a lot of us started seeing some of the chinks in the armor of the plan, but we kind of figured that there was there was somebody behind the curtain at Oz, and like surely someone knew better. So you know, initially we got rid of the the Saddam regime, and we uh, built up all these different we we demobilized a bunch of anti-Saddam militias. A lot of them were controlled by Iran because of the way that Saddam persecuted the Shi'a's. Um, and so a lot of that initially seemed kind of wrong to me because it was like we knew the Iranians were bad uh, because of Iran's history up to that point point. and so we were sitting here arming these these Shia militias but that was a time when I was 23 24 young green beret and I was like nah it's just my job to to do what they say and to, you know build up this this militia force into an actual army I don't know the big picture you know someone knows the big picture you know come to find out years later that nobody really knew the big picture I think it was probably somewhere after the the Iraqi elections the first time in like 05-06, and just seeing how there was just so much sectarian hatred there for each other, and that Iran had done such a good job of fully taking over that government that I was like, this is an absolute disaster. A, we probably would have been better off just leaving Saddam in power. B, we're not gonna, we're not gonna be able to fix this. You could send over our entire military, which at one point, at the height of the surge, we had you know a fair amount of soldiers over there and it wouldn't matter. And it, it just became a magnet for multiple groups, from the, the Sunni extremists and al-Qaeda all the way to Iran to just sit there and pick away at the U.S. and watch us bleed.
0: The people who would theoretically be behind the curtain uh, giving the orders and, and helping devise the plan is, is essentially our sort of general class and, and the, you know, the, the paramilitary class that leads at, at DOD. Um, what is your assessment of the quality of our military leadership right now uh, thinking back through American history, there were charismatic generals, you know, from Patton to MacArthur and, and so on that uh, really inspire American confidence in our, in our general class. I think there's a lot of people now reevaluating that assessment. How do you think about the generals? Yeah, I
2: think right now, a lot of them are very concerned that their, their generation of war it was all for naught, and that's why I think they resisted so heavily when we go to pull out of these places. Secretary of Defense Mattis being a great example. Like he, we finally had reached something that you could call a victory, the, the defeat of the territorial caliphate. But he, want, he desperately wanted to stay there and build the next series of bases. I mean, to what to what strategic end he and his ilk saw there in Syria, I'm really confused by. I don't know what you think we're going to do in, you know, eastern Syria. Um, but I think a lot of them are really, really holding on, trying to stay relevant. I also think they lack the intestinal fortitude and the courage to go to our leaders and say, hey, look, there is no military solution here. Like, we, we've, we've seen this, we've tried this recently. Look at what we did in Afghanistan, look what we did in Iraq. Like, the, the, uh, the task that you're giving us, if they would, were to say this to the president, you know, it's just impossible via the military. You know, the military can go break things, but as far as going in and building these these countries in our image or whatever, whatever theory we're operating under at the time, um, it just it just hasn't worked. But they lack that courage because the reward system in D.C. is to be a good boy. I mean, whoever is in in power and authority. The better that you um, adhere to what they say, then the better officer you are, and that's that's the reward system. From the time these guys come into the system, and then especially if they want to make it in the Pentagon, they don't get very far by bucking the system. There's some people that we claim buck the system here and there, like McMaster wrote a book where he, you know, trashed everybody the v, the leadership in Vietnam. But all those guys were retired by then, you know, and, and that's that's about as much dissent as is tolerated from that class of generals, you know. So. I, I really wish there was more vocal generals speaking out right now um, on everything that's going on with the military. I'm sure we're going to talk about that as well, but especially when it comes to our wars. And I spent the ones that attempted to portray President Trump's policy as being naive. You could disagree with it, but saying that we're just doing the status quo is the best thing for the nation, that's where I think there's a, a dishonest side
1: of their argument. Well, it's been very weird, too, to watch this alliance between you know, the the peaceful internationalist crowd who, like, have deep respect for the EU and for these international institutions, watching them ally with the upper echelons of our military to say, oh, yeah, you know, we're just going to continue to try to, you know, build democracy in the Middle East. Like, surely this is what they want. Um, and I think the one of the only, you know, hard lessons that we've learned over the last couple of years is, wow, that... That actually is not what they wanted and, uh, you know, perhaps we have made a mistake.
0: Yeah, that that cadre of uh, liberal internationalists and the top brass at at the military uh, have a new charge these days, right. which is it seems like uh, making sure people like you never happen again. You know, uh, you know, like uh, uh, people would call you a domestic extremist, right, I guess, right. because you had the audacity to vote for President Trump. Um, yeah. Uh, how are you thinking about this stuff? There's been some fantastic reporting at uh, Revolver News yeah. from Darren Beatty uh, about uh, this fellow named Bishop Garrison that's mm-hmm. at DOD. Uh, others have have dug in on it. How are are you thinking about uh, these political purges that seem like they're happening in the military.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think they're very alarming, and I think people need to pay a lot more attention to them. So, from the time that President Biden selected uh, Secretary of Defense Austin, they came in and said, "Hey, the biggest problem right now that we're facing is whatever domestic extremism, white supremacy, something like that, and we need to do this 60-day stand down." And that that stand down included the installing of political commissars, essentially. Bishop Garrison got a lot of attention, but then the first thing they did was they tried to put a guy named uh, Estrada down at, uh, SoCal, at Special Operations Command, my old command. Um, and that guy didn't even bother to purge his social media. He had stuff on there where he was comparing Trump supporters to Hitler, and he's supposed to be the guy going down and making sure that we're adhering to affirmative action policies at Special Operations Command. I mean, it's hilarious, but at the same time, it's so up in your face of like, hey, if you step out of line, I am coming for you. And I think that's the message that the Biden administration is trying to send, because right now you're seeing so many active duty leaders and senior officers now on Twitter having to do all these. They're having to do their, um, their pledge of loyalty now to the new regime of woke. So if you don't virtue signal hard enough to being woke, then the spotlight could turn on you. The scrutiny could turn on you. Like, why are you not speaking the new language of the government, of the DOD? So I think it's a great way for Biden and Secretary Austin to identify who their loyalists are and who their loyalists aren't. I mean, you see this all the time in communist countries. Um, There's a famous there's a famous clip of Saddam when he purged all the, the military leaders. Like he comes into this theater and he has them all there. And then the first time he reads off a guy's name and he runs off to his execution, all the different officers start standing up and they're doing their professions of love to Saddam. You know, and that's just what it looks like to me right now. I'm being a little bit overdramatic, but seeing all these guys just say like, the most important thing in the military right now is making sure we have a, an all-gay helicopter crew. Put that <laughs> put that on social media right now. And like the ponytail issue, we need to make sure that women have ponytails. Like, I don't care if women have ponytails or not, but is it that big of a deal that yeah. we need to make a whole like week about it like they did. Yeah. So to me, it's just all them saying like, I adhere to the new regime. Don't look at me. Look at the next guy who's not hot on the social media queue right now.
1: Yeah. So lay the groundwork. I mean, for us in our audience, what what kind of deprogramming efforts are going on within the military right now? I mean, what are soldiers being taught and told to do on you know the ground level to to support the new regime, as you call it?
2: So the biggest thing is the, secu- the the biggest thing codified that I've seen so far, and I've had people tell me rumors here and there, but the security clearance process. Um, the act, I mean, to get a good job in the military, you need to be able to hold a top-level security clearance. So being able to obtain one is a, you know, it's necessary. We need to go through and make sure that we actually have qualified people to get security clearances. So there is a pretty in-depth process for that. Mm-hmm. But they've inserted this new clause or this new section where they want to see if you've been part of a group that believes in conspiracy theories. And so they've sent out the messaging very clear that like if you have anything on your social media, if you have expressed things publicly about the last president or a political party, um, the political party that's not in power, then they, you might not be eligible to get a security clearance. So at that point, you're basically halting people's upward mobility. There's also uh, a financial incentive there too to get a security clearance because if you hold one, once you get out of the military, you're eligible to get other jobs. So they're, they're really right now trying to enforce and make sure that people that are going to work their ways into the most sensitive locations of the federal government they adhere to the new regime. And they will at least be cognizant enough to go through and delete all their social media and never say anything bad again. And like, cause they know that's that's hanging over their head. So that's going on. And then I think just the tone set from the top down is, is what's really, really key. Cause all these subordinate leaders in the military are now gonna see like, hey, we need to, take a stand down day for whatever transvestite training or you know racial uh, critical race theory and all that type of stuff and that's going to hurt readiness um, because obviously the guys aren't off training but a lot of the military especially the guys that are on the pointy edge they're conservative i mean they're probably not out there with their maga hats on every day but they they lean right and so now the messaging is very much like you you guys are the enemies. And this is the same group that went off. These are my peers that went off and fought wars for the last two decades. And so a lot of them are just choosing to retire, get out of the military or just, Hey, I'm going to, you know, ride this out until I've hit my 20 years and then I'm done. So it's, it's hurting readiness. It's hurting morale. And it's just turning the military into almost what we see in like a lot of third world countries where it's just a Praetorian guard for the regime.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's a joke. Like, yeah I see people making fun of it on Twitter constantly, yeah. you know, saying how does how does this help keep America safe? like it's it's, I mean, I think a lot of our enemies are probably laughing at us that yeah. this is what we're focusing on. This is what our military yeah. leaders are choosing to talk about. So
0: yeah. there's been some ads that have uh, been compared. Uh, I think people have compared the Russian military ads and the Chinese military ads with the American mm. ones. in terms yeah. of of posture, of like root cause of mission. How are you, uh, you know, how do you compare in your mind the the way that the American military advertises itself domestically versus how other countries um, have been doing so over the last couple of years? Yeah, the, uh,
2: I mean, I get it with the American military. They they are trying to recruit from America. So like the recruiting messages are going to change as the culture changes. I, I get that. What really concerns me is the language that they're using and the image that they're projecting because they're using language that's right out of like the critical race theory handbook and the critical race theory handbook is all critical theories all based in marxist ideology so especially that cia ad where the woman is like i'm a i mean i can't even list it all off she's like I'm a, I'm a cisgendered whatever latino female like she goes through all of her different pronouns you know and that becomes the center of the advertisement of the recruiting thing and so it shows our enemies that hey We've been infiltrated by this Marxist ideology because our enemies know exactly what that is. China knows exactly what that is. So, and then the army did the same thing where there's this. I think it's a girl and she's raised by two moms or or, or whatever it is. But the they put all that inclusive CRT modern vocal language in there. So if I'm if I'm our adversary, I'm obviously gonna laugh at like ha I got a uh, my recruiting video is a bunch of like barrel chested guys jumping out of airplanes and shooting guns kind of like our ads used to be when I came in. But really, I'm going to lick my chops and think, man, we, we've actually gone further and done better at infiltrating this country than I thought when I see their their CIA and the military using critical theory doctrine to recruit people now. So that just says a lot about like the infiltration of our institutions and our military, but then also the general populace that this is what young Americans
1: want to see. It's pretty alarming. Well, and I think too, that's what That's why the American military, uh, you know, and, and intelligence has always been so great is because it's been a summation of, you know, what America is. I mean, there's, there's a reason why we call, um, you know, the men, the men and women before boomers, there's a reason why we call them the greatest generation Mm -hmm. because they, they were, you know, they were, they were a sum of, uh, you know, great Americans at that time. And I think that the, kind of decline in the way that we recruit people uh, follows and and I guess mirrors the decline in our culture and yeah. and also our social cohesion I mean I've I've pointed this out on on Twitter but it's almost like we live in two countries right now right. where where this kind of thing is you know praised and accepted right you know in the boardrooms of Nike and Apple and apparently the US Army um, and then another you know part of the country where people are like, what the hell is going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, and 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 listen, I'm I'm 24. You know, I've 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 not lived a very long life, but I even remember seeing ads in 2010 that were just totally different. You know, than than what we're seeing right now. I mean, it's it's certainly alarming to me how how quickly all of this has changed.
0: Infiltration takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking back to the earliest days when you served, what are the things you can pick out now as precursors to things getting this bad? Because it didn't happen overnight. There were there were seeds set mm. at some point. Yeah. Um, what were some of the, the more lukewarm, eh, it's fine, whatever, uh, things that you saw back then that you now look at and say, oh, if, if only we had done something then? So I was pretty,
2: I think, insulated in the military. I went right to Ranger Regiment, and then I went right to Special Forces. So a, a lot of the things, I've heard other folks point out um, when they integrated all the MOS, all all the jobs. Um, and then don't ask, don't tell, and all that. I, I wasn't very affected by that personally. What what I think what, to kind of put my finger on a moment in time, I, I think is around the I don't know mid two thousands when it was very obvious that the wars were not going very well. Um, and maybe even now that I think about it, to the lead up to the Iraq War, when General Shinseki said that there was no way we could actually occupy Iraq with the number of troops we had, and they fired him. So. I do think that we really made this incentive system through failure, both administrations, but especially the Bush administration, and especially Iraq. There's some in Afghanistan too, but especially Iraq, because the whole thing was sold on lies. There became this desire by senior ranking officers to just echo whatever bad idea was coming out of the White House, um, and then to really go along. And, and the further that you push that bad idea, the more that you would be rewarded. So guys like Petraeus, they went and they wrote their their big book on how we were gonna win the war of counterinsurgency, um, but it, it fed the machine of, hey, we can't leave yet. We need to put in more troops. And so everybody that was part of his crew they kind of got promoted along as well and so now I think when you want to insert something as insidious as as insidious as the woke doctrine there's already been this culture that like hey if you want to make it in this town you want to make it in the pentagon you want to make it in the military like you will be the ultimate yes man because we will fire on the spot anybody who goes against it so one minute it's surge after surge and don't give truth to power don't actually report ground truth back to the guys in dc and the next minute it's hey make the um all-gay helicopter crew your, yeah. your, your your new your new priority yeah. you know don't pay attention
1: to china on the march in the south china sea or all the different other issues yeah. that we have yeah so I know this is a lot to put on your shoulders, but you're running for Congress. What do we do about it? How do we fix it?
2: So I think we do need people that have experience in the military and people that have experience in the intelligence community to help exercise Congress's oversight role. So overall, in the global war on terror, I think Congress regardless of who is in charge of it, has been absolutely out to lunch. The reason why these wars have gone on this long is because we've just let the president, whoever it was, operate on an authorization to use military force. And Congress has, you know, I think pretty much been derelict in their constitutional duties of overseeing that. Every year they're just like, National Defense Authorization Act coming through, like, how much money do you want? You know, like, <laughs> can I can I get a couple items in there too? And like, that, we just call it good. And there's very little rigorous debate on it whatsoever. So I think bringing back oversight, but then really bringing the leaders of the DOD and the intelligence community and, and having them explain, hey, what are you doing? Is it working? Like really articulate it for me. Don't hide behind classification. If Okay, fine, I had a security clearance. If we need to talk about something super duper secret, we can go down on the skiff, but you still have to explain it to me. I think we have a lot of people in Congress um, that obviously their, their feet aren't being held to the fire by their constituents because the wars have affected so few people. But I think some of the ones that do actually want to make a difference I don't think that they understand really how the Pentagon and the system works. They certainly, most of them, don't understand how the intelligence community works. Unfortunately, some of them that do, they're on the the side of the the ball that wants you know never-ending interventions. So I think we need good America first guys in there that can hold their feet to the fire and say why are, why are we still at war? Is is this is this terrorist group really is the only option we have to go take out terrorism in the Middle East? A conventional military occupation? Like what is the CIA doing? You know maybe they should be focused on taking out terrorists without massive ground invasions as opposed to doing what they're doing right now you know i think i think it's the same thing too with the weaponization of the the doj like call them to the carpet as well
0: AUMF is is sort of the the vehicle through which our endless wars have been propagated is essentially the dereliction of congress's duty there Mm -hmm. but that but that doesn't necessarily get to the the substance of the question of what where are we right now that we shouldn't be you know you're Your president and uh, Department of Defense Secretary, Joe Kent, where are you pulling out immediately on day one?
2: Oh, yeah. Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq are definitely, definitely day one. I mean, for most of the same big reason, there's some nuance in there, some details, but like our investments there have just, there's been no return on investment. And I think all we do is make ourselves more strategically vulnerable by being there. So Afghanistan is strategic flyover country. And pretty much every country that is on the border of Afghanistan is not exactly friendly to America. So I don't (laughs) know why we're hanging out there as the bad guy magnet for, you know, places like Pakistan and Iran and then China. Um, You know, so, That's a that's an easy one. I I just don't think there's any reason for us to be there. If Al Qaeda does come back, I don't believe that I don't trust the Taliban. The Taliban, you know, regardless of what they said in Doha, they're gonna let some version of Al-Qaeda come back in there. But we do have um, the capability through our intelligence services. We've been there for a long time. We know a lot of people to keep our finger on the pulse and incentivize it for different tribal leaders that when their rival tribal leader host Al Qaeda, there's an incentive for them to let us know about that, and then we come in very quickly and very swiftly, probably not even any boots on the ground, take care of it and get the heck out. Like, no more. It doesn't matter to us if there's if, if there's a centralized government in Afghanistan. It doesn't. I mean, that place has been nothing but warring tribes for its entire history, and us trying to prop up a government in Kabul like makes zero sense whatsoever. You know. Iraq is another one that is an absolute money pit that we just have to get rid of. It'd be nice because Iraq is actually in strategic territory if we had a good relationship with the Iraqi government, but that ship sailed a long time ago. Iran infiltrated the Iraqi government; they control pretty much all the key levers of that country. And so right now, Iran circumvents U.S. sanctions by their their dealings with the Iraqi government. The Iraqi government won't rein in their proxies to kill Americans, attack American bases. There's nothing there for us but further loss. And then Syria, I mean, like I said, it's the eastern deserts of Syria. There's like one oil field there, and other than that, it's we stand the potential of getting into a shooting war with the Russians, the Iranians, the Assad regime. Every now and again, the Turks. It's like, wh- why are we there? It just doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. So I want to ask you a question specifically about Syria. Uh, it seems like a lot of the pearl clutching uh, on the right, in particular, about uh, President Trump's position on. Um, you know pulling ground troops out of Syria was uh, the abandonment of the Kurds uh, that was the that was the, yeah. the the big thing on the right you know yeah. you had neoconservatives everywhere saying this is this is a human rights crisis like we we're committing war crimes if we leave you know right. it's this horrible thing uh is that true and and if not why
2: so that's not true we st- so it's a complicated issue. overall, that's not true and we made no promises to the Kurds as a fact as a matter of fact, we saved the Kurds. The Kurds would have been overrun by ISIS. They couldn't have held out indefinitely. So we came in there and we gave them the space to take that ground back and to hold that ground. People use the Kurds as if they are a monolithic group and they're not. The Syrian Kurds, they, under Assad, they had a, a decent relate, a decent working relationship with the Assad regime. They weren't necessarily like his favorites, but at the same time, Assad wasn't doing to the Syrian Kurds what Saddam was doing to the Iraqi Kurds. Saddam was, you know, gassing them, committing crimes against humanity. So there was a very real case to be made there. We put in a no fly zone after the first Gulf War that created the modern Iraqi Kurdistan. So we did save those lives with minimal boots on the ground, um, but Syria. We never promised them that, that this was going to be part of their Kurdistan. As a matter of fact, the Iraqis that we saved, the Iraqi Kurdistan, um, the KDP and the PUK, they supported our policy of getting out of there because those those Kurds there, they fought bravely against ISIS. They deserve all the credit for that. But a lot of them have ties to um, sort of socialist-ish groups um, that operate inside Turkey. Um, it's just a local tribal squabble that we don't, there's no reason for us to get in the middle of so, and then, I mean, my other thing is, if our bar for an intervention and constant occupation and deployment is that one group is going to do bad things to other groups, you know, 6,000 miles away, well, then we need to start the draft because we're going to need to be pretty much everywhere because the world is a very dark and dangerous place outside the borders of the United States. So the neoliberals and the neoconservatives when they say well oh, but they're all going to kill but little girls will never go to school again in Afghanistan like okay fine sell it to the American people that we're starting the draft and we're going to need pretty much every man woman and child to go fight and you know forever because yeah. the world is horrible
1: yeah we're going to have every man woman and child fight to teach uh, critical race theory it, to little girls exactly. in Afghanistan right that's going to be the and somehow
2: that will make the world a better place like, yeah Yeah. <laughs> the funny thing about the, the, the neoconservatives and the neoliberals they they never explain like what the goal is It's it's always like they're they're the ultimate like drug dealer or you know card dealer at the casino like you're gonna you're gonna win next time man yeah. just don't get up like this i just need yeah. i need one more surge we need to be in one more country and then terrorism it's gonna be gone it's gonna be democracy yeah. mm-hmm. the, the come go- back the me goal is year. the
0: transgender pride flag flying over tehran <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> i guess i guess zoom zoom out for me here then what what is the problem at a first principles level with american foreign policy over the last i would probably argue half century, maybe even an entire century, as a yeah. Pat Buchanan, who's right there, would argue. Um, and and what should our posture, what should the use of the uh, American military and our foreign policy be? So I think the biggest
2: problem is ideological interventions, where we we go over and we say that we need to stop the spread of X. And if X isn't a clear and present danger to us, then I don't know exactly what we're doing over there. And if it is a clear and present danger to us, there needs to be an actual strategy for how we're going to defeat that, and then how we're going to get out. I don't think that's something that we had in Vietnam, Korea, arguably as well. Um, but then definitely the global war on terror, we, we morphed really, really quickly. So we went over to Afghanistan right after 9-11 for all the right reasons to go get bin Laden and to take out the Taliban that harbored him. But right after that, when bin Laden ran over into Pakistan and we got told, hey, you can't pursue him into Pakistan. We switched. I mean, Bush said it. It was like April of 2002 that he wanted to do a nation-building mission, and then the next thing you know, we're invading Iraq. So when we go into these places for these lofty ideals, I think that that's where we, things just go completely off the track. So we really have to look at, hey, if we're going to deploy our military, and I'm not against military deployments. I'm against continual wars. I mean, we do need to project power in in some cases. You know, every now and again, we need to flex somewhere, and that's and that's fine. That's part of the the balance of power that we need to play. But if it comes to actual boots on the ground, we're going to be in combat. There has to be clear cut, present danger, and then how we're going to get out of there. And then U.S. foreign policy is, at the end of the day, it needs. we're not the world's police. You know, We're not out here to give the entire world life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We're here to make sure that our people have that. So securing our borders, I think, is a military objective. But then also, we don't need to go overseas just looking for trouble. I think that's, that's key.
0: On Twitter, we uh, we mentioned that you'd be coming on the podcast and we solicited questions that people may have for you. And I think one of them is apropos here. Uh, someone asked, um, I believe the account is Alexei Arora. Uh, he asked, uh, how do we prevent uh, this new phase of engagement with China um, that we're, we're starting to evaluate in the United States from becoming a cause for a second Cold War, essentially? How do you think about the China issue? Where do you think that the neocons may be infiltrating the question? How, how are you thinking about China?
2: I think China, I mean, they're already in an economic, cultural, and information war with us. And we just have not been participating. We've been infiltrated, essentially, you know, at pretty much every level. I mean, I read that book uh, by Josh Rogan, Chaos Under Heaven. And mm-hmm. that book, like every chapter, you're just like, you know, he, he talks about another level of society in which the Chinese have their fingers in. For me, as a guy who was fighting in the global war on terror, it, it, it's. It's kind of it's painful that we let China get this powerful and pose this much of a threat while we're bleeding in other places. I, I'd love it if I could say, hey, at the end of the day, the times I served, the friends that I lost, like it was going towards this great thing that we actually defeated and we and we beat, kind of like our grandfathers did in World War II. But with China, it's it's all economic. I mean, we have absolutely killed off our ability in this country to produce. So our whole modern monetary theory right now, of like let's just continue to print money and. Keep a certain segment of our society out of work. That plays right into China's hands. I mean, when you, if you're a power and you've gobbled up most of the world's production ability, man, you you are working from a position of strength there. I mean, if you look at the way that we took out the the Soviets in the in the in our Cold Wars, because our economy just absolutely drained them. You know, so. I think restoring production is 100% key. Getting all of our manufacturing lines out of China has to be absolutely essential. And then going after them for everything, intellectual property theft, offensively using tariffs. Like We have to start fighting the war back against them. So I I do think we're engaged in some sort of a war. I don't know if you can avoid it. I mean, if we try and put our heads in the sand and say, ah, we don't really want any trouble here and there, China's going to be like, oh, great. I mean, because they're killers. I mean, and they have complete and total control of their government like their government's all-inclusive and i think we we need to get more aggressive about that aggressively defending our country and that starts of strengthening our economy and making our economy independent
0: the first uh domino that seems uh, like it could fall on the question of, of a military conflict is taiwan yeah how mm. are you how are you thinking about the risks there what the united states involvement should be and, and so on
2: so the biggest risk i mean is really the, I mean. Taiwan has their their sovereignty and we should help them with that. Again, I'm I'm apprehensive about going to war, a kinetic war over somebody else's soil. We should what we need to do is we need to get most of the chip production out of there. So the microchips and then all the different uh, technology manufacturing that happens in Taiwan. That's why Taiwan is so darn important. So if we were to pull a lot of that out. And get that back into America, we take away a lot of Taiwan's value to begin with, and we strengthen our economy in the process. So that's the game. I, w- I would like to take out the pull out the rug from underneath the Chinese in, the, in that sense, but then also getting our Navy more active in the South China Sea. I mean, that's a good deterrence use for a conventional military, but that's mostly for show. I don't think that that's going to be the end-all be-all that we go over and we flex hard on China. I think get, taking away what's valuable from Taiwan, Makes time makes Taiwan less valuable to the Chinese, so therefore, why are they going to send their navy down there and and, and play some sort of a uh, risky move against us?
1: Yeah. So, how exactly do you view that economic part working? I mean, are you are you thinking, you know, we just tell Intel, hey, you make these here now. You know, it's it's no discussion. Like, yes, fine, my iPhone costs two thousand dollars now. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, just do it here. Or do you think? You know, maybe there's some, um, uh, you know, tax incentive yeah. or something for new companies to do so.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's key. I wish there was like a, a simple flip switch you could just go flip over at Congress or the DoD and just like, yeah. you know, hey, it's done, it's back here now. But uh, we we have to really incentivize those companies to move back here, and and I think we can. I mean, the reason why those companies moved over there in the first place um was the regulations that we put on companies we make it very difficult to actually have your production base here in the United States so getting rid of those regulations I think is absolutely key and then possibly even you know massive tax breaks if if they do it quickly and then with that carrot there needs to come a stick of like hey at some point we're going to tariff you like we tariff a foreign com- a company that's just that's just it and maybe the iPhone prices go up like but then we have competition in the U.S. market that, that I think could balance that out. It's a risky it's a risky thing. It's not 100%, but at the same time, the way that China, the grasp they have right now on our economy, and especially on world manufacturing production, I think is something that we need to take as seriously as we would take a war.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing that I never understand is you see all these people on Twitter saying, oh, well, you know, if you do that, you can't buy a flat screen TV for $150. And it's like... Which would you rather have, a $150 yeah. flat screen or be able to actually make things in your country and give good jobs right. to good people, yeah. so you we, know? Yes,
2: yeah, so we'd have to make a, I mean, I think that would initially be the case. That would be like the market reaction of like, oh crap, we can't make these over here. But if we yeah. start incentivizing all these companies with tax breaks, I think, you know, uh, competition would just take care of that. We're not gonna just let, well, we have to import them now for 150 bucks or this one US manufacturing can only, company can only make an iPhone for $2,000. I, yeah. I, I think the market would eventually correct itself.
0: I agree. This town is full of, uh, frankly, silly and possibly seditious people who would call what you just said <laughs> socialism. They would say that, oh, Yo, right. you, ca- you can't have things made in right. America. That's socialism. Again, right. they should they should be chased out, silly and feathered. And seditious feathers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what is your your Broader approach to economics. How do you think of, of what the American government uh, at the federal level, their role should be in our economic policy? What do you think uh, the squeaky wheels are in our economic policy? You know, the, the Republican Party's answer for the last 30 years has been tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. There's not many taxes left to cut. So we have to do something else. What, what is it that you want the federal government to be doing uh, to improve the state of the American economy?
2: So I look at it as a not really messing with things inside, but then making things come back to us and messing up things that want to come from from the outside. So we have to get production back up. Like we're, my district, we're in the heart of timber country, and our timber industry, which employed a lot of people and made it possible for people to graduate high school, get a job in a mill, get a job um, working in the logging industry, and and support a family, it made that very possible for generations. The federal government came seized up a bunch of the land a ton of our land is owned by the federal government and then they heavily regulated it through the epa and a couple other useless government organizations and now we literally are sitting on these forests that yeah some of them we can use for recreational uh, use but with logging um with logging at its peak we could still use them for, for recreational uses too there's a ton of land out there but right now we've just absolutely killed off that industry the forests aren't maintained so we have horrific wildfires every year um but we need to bring back manufacturing in this country. Like, there's no way we can continue to run on these this deficit economy. We're not producing anything. And now that we're not producing anything, why would we expect all these other countries, China being one of them, to buy our debt bonds continually? That just seems like a massive vulnerability to me. So I use the timber industry as an example because it's from my district, but the energy industry, massive coal, steel, all that, we need to get back into aggressively bringing back U.S. production. And that's going to take care of a ton of the angst and the, carnage, for lack of a better term, that's been inflicted on the working class and the middle class now for generations same thing with the tech industry i mean all these all these kids my generation and younger we we're told hey like you can't have an industry job anymore it's it's blue collar it's dirty it's old fashioned and it's done what you need to do is you need to go to college and like you, you need, need to, to
1: learn a code you got you to, to go oh to essentially
2: yeah you need to learn yeah. to code or like i mean there's even it's it's a very boomer kind of mentality like just get a college degree in anything it doesn't matter what it is and so a lot of a lot of people like they fell into that and they went and they got a degree some useful some not then they had to move out of their small town because their small town was killed off because there's no more industry there anymore. They get mm-hmm. to a big city. Where's, where's, I have a bunch of student debt. Now, where's the job? Well, the job has been taken away and outsourced by H1B, L1 visas on the tech side. And then also, now we just have this gig economy. So we have these people that are, you know, they're saddled with all kinds of student debt. They can't get a good job. They can't start families. We've made a generation into Russian serfs. So yeah. I think a big thing is just getting that production economy back on that. And I do think the federal government has a role to play because like I said before, it's a national security issue. We need to treat it like it's a wartime thing. So like we aggressively need to get all these towns back online that have been absolutely just decimated. So I think when some of these com- these companies come back from overseas, if the government's going to cut a good deal, a good tax incentive, we can tell those companies where to relocate and revive these industries. So that's that's my economic philosophy: is getting our our production back on and our uh, working class and our middle class back to work.
1: Yeah, one of our um, one of our fellows' uh, families used to own a um, you know who I'm talking about used to own a. Uh, like a, like a sawmill in, in West Virginia. Yeah. Um, and I remember specifically in his interview when we, were, when we were kind of talking about, you know, basically asking the same question that Rob just asked you, he said, yeah, you know, when I was growing up, uh, NAFTA was always a dirty word mm-hmm. in my household. Like that was a bad word that we were not allowed to say. Um, and I think that accurately reflects the feelings of most people who, who have been doing, uh, you know, hard blue collar work for years and yeah. are suddenly told that they're not able or allowed to do so.
0: Right. What's the... What's the American dream in your view? Like, what is the, the, uh, the, the signpost and, and, the, and the telos that we should be pursuing for every American family? Like, what's that life supposed to look like for the broad middle of the country? Uh, paint, paint a word picture for me on this.
2: I think it's being able to essentially graduate high school. You know, you can go to a good public school that's going to teach you good educational skills, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but then also good patriotic US history. And then at the end of that, if you're willing to go and work hard, there's multiple industry jobs waiting for you. It's, it's, you know, geographic and a very based on where you live in the country, but there needs to be a thriving economy where a young man or a young woman can go get a job. And then a couple years later, they can get married and one spouse can stay home and you don't need to have two incomes and you don't need to have these be straddled with a or be saddled with the, the position that many young couples are in. It's like, well, one, can we afford to now get a babysitter? Childcare care is a huge issue. We have to get back to being able to have someone work an honest day's work and that pays for their family and a modest house and then, you know, just a responsible good middle middle class type of life with a, you know, pension program built into your company. Um, I think that's really what that system right there got our co- got our country back online after wo- after the depression and after World War II.
0: Last summer uh, American cities burned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were right there in the middle of it, right around the Portland area. Uh, walk us through what you saw and, and why it motivated you in part to run for Congress.
2: Yeah, what I saw in my hometown of Portland, um, actually pretty scary to see in the States. I, I saw what i had seen overseas, especially after uh, the regime of Saddam fell, and there was violence brewing up and boiling beneath the surface. There was you know, different groups over there that They hated each other and they were just waiting for someone to give them some purpose and direction, which is what a lot of the really bad actors did, Al-Qaeda being one of them. Um, So this last summer in Portland, when after the, the George Floyd incident happened and BLM initially started doing some of their peaceful protests, Antifa and then bad actors from BLM jumped right in there and they provided the violence and they provided the direction to that and then right away I saw that was obviously bad but you could put your finger on it because it's people acting violently what I saw from people who I knew who I grew up with um, and the broader community in Portland was support ideological support for what was going on and because they had been so indoctrinated with critical theory 1619 project all this that like Right when Antifa and BLM could say, "This right here is the example of what we've been teaching you guys about," and we have to go over and overthrow it, people's minds were immediately changed, and they were like, "Well, it's okay that Antifa and BLM are burning down our city every night, and every now and again they march into the suburbs and smash up cars and scream at people and tell them to stay in their houses or get out of their houses." They were justifying that to themselves. They were they were spending their money to um, support Kamala Harris's favorite charity of bailing out rioters. Um, So seeing that, it it was really alarming. And then that violence just never... It never went away because violence does never go away on its own. That's the thing. If violence isn't checked, it's just human nature. Like violent actors don't go out and wreak havoc and then just decide that, like, oh, on the fifteenth of the month we'll stop wreaking havoc. It doesn't work that way. They're actually they have to be dealt with with force, and that just never happened in Portland. And so now it's expanded. The homeless population—they're not really homeless. There's a, there's a ton of folks that moved in there essentially as a as a proxy army that live in these different. Uh, homeless camps and anytime they want to anytime i think the far left wants to turn on the violence they mobilize these guys and they're, they've even been an expeditionary force they've you know gone to uh, different u.s cities michigan minnesota and all that so i mean it's it, it's been insane to see here in the states and it's been horrible to watch leaders who've been charged with providing law and order and peaceful in a peaceful community for their citizens just completely le- neglect their duties
1: i have a buddy in uh in Minnesota that says the uh, the Black Lives Matter sign on the front lawn is the modern day uh, mm-hmm. blood of the lamb over the door that says to yeah. pass over this house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's more yeah. of a fear-based it's, thing than it's, anything it's, else. Yeah, it's the don't hurt me sign. Yeah. Yeah. God. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know who that was. Uh, yeah, I do.
0: Um, what would you have done uh, at that point during the summer if you were you know, directly advising President Trump at that moment in time? What would you have asked him to do? And what do you think the long term response to avoid this sort of stuff happening again at the legislative level needs to be?
2: I think we need to designate antifa and blm as terrorist organizations and then start arresting and slapping those bad actors with terror charges with federal terrorism charges because like the local governments they've they've said they won't do it there's a part of me the conservative part of me is like well they voted for it so let their cities burn (laughs) but the problem is once again it just it spills over so my district we are essentially a suburb of portland and not too far to our north is seattle so we're really sandwiched in between we've seen the spillover um into our district so these things have consequences. So this is this is where we do need the federal uh, government to come in, federal law enforcement to come in. We have the tools. Like the Portland police, they know who all these guys are. If you went and talked to a beat cop who worked last summer, he knows exactly who all the rioters are. He knows who the leaders are. He's probably arrested them all multiple times. We just have an activist district attorney there who refuses to, to slap them with charges and a very cowardice mayor refuses to deal with it. So that's where I think the federal government needs to come in Target them like we target terrorists, target them like we target uh, organized crime because they're crossing state lines. You could easily use like a lot of the RICO um, tools to go after their financing. And then I think that needs to be exposed to the American people who's funding these guys, how they work, how they organize. Mm. So I think that's that's part and parcel and key. And then when we go for federal law enforcement grants like mayors and police departments that refuse to to actually support law and order, they should not get one dime. You know, and then I, I would squeeze the mayors and the leadership as hard as I could of those cities, and just stop funding them. Like they get zero federal funds anymore. Like until they start cooperating with the FBI and they start cooperating with the marshals to clean this problem up, like they get nothing. Like any federal fund, I don't care what it is. Like I think, I think if we did that, that would change behaviors really fast.
0: Yeah. In some ways, it's an extension of the sanctuary city policy that we've exactly. pursued for the past couple of years. Yeah. Uh, so we've talked about uh, you know, endless wars. We've talked about crime. We've talked about your economic worldview. What are some of the other issues that you, you see yourself leading on where you to get elected to Congress, the issues you really care about that you think aren't getting the attention they deserve in, in Washington?
2: Election integrity. So the election of 2020 is something that we cannot listen to the mainstream media on and be shy about, or even a lot of traditional republicans who are just like well biden's the president and boy 2020 we just need to vote harder next time you know because we lost legitimately like we know that's not true there's widespread discrepancies wherever you fall on the spectrum of thinking that it was absolutely stolen or you think i don't know there were some some things that were fishy we can't move on as a country until we adjudicate the election of 2020 and that's been i mean that's what got me into this race but then also when i go throughout my my district from like my urban hub and talk to business guys all the way out talking to loggers, the first thing they say to me is, what are we going to do about our elections? What happened in 2020? And are we going to let them get away with it? Because there's a large part- portion of the, the population right now who's disenfranchised of voting. And voting is, it's the social contract we have with our government like and if we violate that and we don't have that anymore or there's a large part of the population that believes that it's not a that the contract has been violated they're going to turn to other means to express their grievances and i've been all over the world and been to places where people express their grievances you know not at the ballot box and it's ugly and i don't want to see that in america so i think we need to have a full congressional inquiry that's what i want to do when i get into congress full congressional congressional inquiry we lay out all the evidence we, we subpoena witnesses subpoena evidence put people under oath and just fully adjudicated. I think a lot of it's happening right, starting right now down in Arizona, Georgia, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I think I think a ton of that's going to start happening. But we really need to paint that picture, I think, for the American people, just to show them that hey, we're not moving on. Because at the end of the day, it's it's not about Trump. It's not about did my guy win. It's it's is our process legit? Is it what it what it says that it is?
0: Yeah. So what what are those reforms that need to happen in order to ensure that that what happened in twenty twenty with our election doesn't happen again? Yeah. We
2: need to absolutely pass a voter ID law. And then in-person voting, I think, needs to be the absolute norm. I mean, there's some cases where absentee balance are required, you know, people that are indefinitely confined, military votes, whatnot. I think a notary system would help out a lot with that. And then getting the machines out of the process 100%. You have to vote. You have to vote at your precinct. Your precinct rosters are scrubbed every year, and then your votes are tabulated by people counting them by hand, real election observers from both parties that can watch. Maybe it takes a little bit longer. Like, who cares? That's fine. It doesn't need to happen right away. You know, like, I I think that those are the core, uh, core things that we need to change. Problem is that needs to happen at the state level. You know, there's only so much that the federal government can, can do in that regards. I'm like, I'm against federalizing the elections. That's what the Democrats want to do with HR one. you know? So I, I think that, the congressional inquiry would lay it out so that the American people would then demand it at their state legislatures um, and, and with their governors. So I think that's that's kind of the, the first step to getting a fair and free elections. Yeah.
0: Uh, we're recording this on Memorial Day. You just did a war room with uh, Steve Bannon earlier today. Um, I want to ask you, what you what service means to you um you know you, you served our country in the military um for for you know over a decade uh, and now you're, you're posturing yourself for for a different form of service in American life I mean how do you think about your obligation to the country and, and what is it that really motivates you there
2: so it, it's always been what i consider to be my calling i mean even before i Uh, went overseas and was in the military from the time I was a really young kid. I I was just amazed that there was people that went overseas to fight so we could enjoy freedom back here. And then that's why I joined the military and that's why I stayed in for, for 20 plus years. So to me, it was it was always about trying to give back because this country, by by virtue of just being born here, regardless of your circumstance, I'm very blessed, great family, you know, was given a great environment to grow up in. But just by b- virtue of being born in the United States, you are so far ahead of the power curve and by any any standards, you know, this country gives all of us so much. So to me, it's, it's a debt that we can never really fully pay. So you all, to me, I always have to be doing something to move our country forward and, and to protect our country and to protect our way of life. So, service to me is just you constantly have to be giving back. It's never done. I don't, I don't think there's ever a time where you can just look back and say, "Well, this one time I did this, did this one thing, and now I'm just going to sit back and only worry about me." Because if we, if we do that and we fall for that trap of comfort, then our country is going to be outran by people that have. The worst intent, and I think we're seeing that right now. I, I think there's a lot of people that have been uh, admirably serving the country for the last, you know, two decades. Um, and then there's been a lot of other people who've been very comfortable. You know, I, I think the generation, the, the Boomer generation, got very comfortable. Vietnam scarred them a little bit, and I think there was a, a negative connotation behind serving, and there was people thought it was much more admirable to just worry about themselves. And then we built this very selfish culture that right now is is kind of coming to a head, and we're very vulnerable to all these different divisive theories, and then also to you know different countries that have worked their way. Into our system. So service to me is is we, it's just never fully paid. You have to continue to give and push forward.
0: I mean, your family has in some ways epitomized the the, the most extreme version of what service looks like, including giving your life for this country. Um, uh, if you don't mind, t- tell us a little bit about your late wife um, Shannon Kent and and sort of um, how how she factors into the way that you think about uh, the questions of service and 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 leadership.
2: Yeah, so Shannon has a great American story. I mean, she was in college. She had just started um, her sophomore year of college when, the, uh, when 9-11 happened. And her uncle and her uh, father were both first responders. Her father was a New York State trooper. And then her uncle's a uh, Staten Island firefighter, so they responded to Ground Zero. And then Shannon and her brother, who's a year younger than her, went and found military recruiters. And Shannon knew that she could learn languages fairly easily. She had self self-taught uh, Spanish and French, so she said to the recruiter, "Hey, I can learn Arabic. Like, put me in." And from there, that she was kind of off the races. She multiple combat tours as an Arabic linguist. She learned how to be a cryptologist, so stealing signals. And then she got into uh, human intelligence collection so running informants um, in their native language so she gained a very specific skill set that put her on the forefront with special operations so she was doing that pushing forward for our country even before it was codified that women could serve you know in combat and in special operations so she just always exemplified to me someone who always said send me like if someone has to go into harm's way send me and she always knew exactly how to Best ply her skills and, and ply her trade. So she knew that she had a knack for languages, and she could have done a million other things. And so, but she was like, "Hey, our country right now, we need to figure out what these people in this very difficult to learn language are saying. So I will be the one that goes and, and does that, you know. And it's a it's a very glamorous job, um, being a linguist and, and being an intelligence collector. If if done right, no one no one knows your name until tragically you're killed, like my wife. So I. I like telling her story and, and her example really you know pushes me and drives me forward. And then the, the timing the nature that she was killed in Syria after Trump tried to get our troops out, to me, that's really what's pushing me forward right now because Shannon's death to me represents so much. It really represents how much damage that the ruling class has inflicted on this country. Because the same people that had no issues with disobeying a duly elected president and leaving our troops in harm's way, these are the same guys that have had no issues keeping us at war, doubling down on failed policy after failed policy. It's the same elites that had no issue shipping all of our manufacturing overseas, that at the end of two decades of bleeding in the Middle East, the only thing we have to show for it is that China could eat our lunch and stop buying our debt bonds. Like So to me, her. Her death has propelled me forward into this next level of service because I really want to go after all the damage that the permanent ruling class has done to this country and put us back on a trajectory where we can go forward as a nation and really just take care of ourselves and make sure that the American people can pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without being absolutely weighed down by the agendas of the permanent ruling class
0: doesn't sound like you're the best fit for dc if that's what you care about <laughs> uh, joe where can people learn more about you
2: i can go to joe kent so i have all my stances at the issues on there there's a link to read all the social media and if they can i'd really appreciate a donation um, i'm up against jamie herrera butler who is sitting on republican establishment money the lincoln project's juicing a bunch of cash into her um, and then after that i'll be up against an absolute crazy leftist uh, from the democrats so I put $200,000 of my own money into the campaign because I, I hate asking people for money. So I want to lead by example. I mean, just like the founding father said, we pledge our lives and our sacred fortunes um, to this endeavor. And that's what I want to do too. So my money's on the table. And then if anybody can kick me a donation to help me fight back against the establishment, I'd really appreciate it. That's awesome.
0: Well, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And thank you. Uh, this day and every day, thank you for your service. to Thank you very much. After our episode this week, we wanted to talk a little bit about something that we have on Amcanon that Jake, our chief creative officer and the editor of Amcanon, has lovingly put together. And that was one of our features. Now, Now, these features are... Uh, in some ways kind of a recombinant version of of stuff that we're doing in general on Amcanon where we're assembling sort of the best, most influential stuff that we care about, whether it's a book, an essay, a podcast, YouTube video, and so on. Uh, But these features focus on sort of one topic uh, and they sort of go from basics Uh, down to more advanced uh, levels and and different subdomains within a given topic. We've done ones on families, we've done one on big tech, we've done one on personnel as policy, and we have one that recently came out called A New Grand Strategy for America. Capping it off is the episode that we did with John Allen Gay of the John Quincy Adams Society, where we did a broad overview of the different issue areas, whether it's Russia, China, Iran, theoretical concepts, history, and so on. Uh, but if you want to learn more about foreign policy, if hearing Joe talk about how we need to end our endless wars was inspiring to you, please go to AmericanMoment.org slash A-M-C-A-N-O-N and pull up this feature because in it we really delve deep into how to think about this not just to to yell about how ending endless wars is important on the Twitter machine although that is important make fun of neocons we encourage it but Uh, It's also important to be well-informed, and this is an issue where the establishment loves to leverage the fact that their expertise, which is in some ways their undoing, uh, disqualifies you from talking about it. And so if you are a young person who wants to get involved in the foreign policy space, it is your moral duty and responsibility to make sure you know your stuff. You need to be able to talk like Joe did or John Allen Gay does about foreign policy, because if we don't, we'll always be on the losing end uh, when it comes to applying the instincts that we believe in on foreign policy.
1: Yeah, it's um, you know, Jake puts a lot of effort into these features. Uh, this is what number is this? Number five. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is the fifth one. Um, highly recommend you 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 check it out. Um, I'm sure, uh, Jake will probably add uh this interview with Joe Kent uh, to a
0: future foreign policy feature at some point. Uh, but highly recommend that you check that out. Yeah. And and in general, just keep an eye on Amcanon. A a lot of you are staffers on Capitol Hill, you're at public policy organizations, your job keeps you busy every day. And so you don't have time to necessarily be in the weeds, you know, going to every magazine or web publications page and seeing what the newest best stuff is. That's why we're doing this, because this will help you um, understand. And also, um, you know, I hear this all the time, uh, kind of a broad view on this, uh, every organization is an assemblage of the private obsessions of its founders. Uh, mm-hmm. That that There is no exception when it comes to American Moment. And part of the reason we created Amcanon, because constantly over the past couple of years, people have come to me and they've been like, what do I read and watch to understand, you know, this this nationalism, this populism stuff that you're always talking about? And eventually got to the point that I was sick of, like, pulling 20 different links together in my notes app and sending it over. Now I can just point them to an easy URL that I can type out. And so if you have someone that you know that um, is, is grasping in this direction on how to think about politics, uh, politics of restraint and realism on foreign policy, of sanity and immigration, of supporting families and so on, send them to Amcanon. They'll find uh winsome compelling arguments for these um in order to bring them along and then on your side of things you'll find pieces that help you understand the vocabulary and how to think about it as well so um uh, always going to make a plug for this at the end of our episodes because uh, this podcast is in some ways uh a tool to fill whatever small gaps we do see in that canon there's lots of good stuff out there and that's why we do this every week
1: but with that Let's dive into the feature itself.
0: Yeah, we we divide it uh, into a couple different sections. There's one on sort of getting started, broad theoretical conceptions on foreign policy that are really important. Um, and then uh, you know from the archives, uh, we pull out some speeches and uh, and other things from from everyone from John Quincy Adams to to others on on how to think about foreign policy, how our founders envisioned foreign policy. Uh, uh, we talk about um, sort of the contemporary liberal order and and. How how it uh, leads itself to a liberal internationalist framework. And then we do uh, deep dives on on different regions of the world, how to think about China, how to think about Russia, how to think about the Middle East, and so on. And each of those requires a different approach, and it's especially important, I think, on the China issue to be extraordinarily vigilant right now. The neoconservatives in Washington have decided that they are going to, quote-unquote, pivot to China. They are going to use China as the vehicle to keep the gravy train with the military-industrial complex running for the next hundred years, and it's our moral responsibility to prevent them from doing that, and to ensure we have the right frame on the China issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, the China issue is 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 twofold. Um, I always get into a lot of trouble on Twitter whenever I talk about this. I remember a particular uh, spicy tweet of mine over uh, the holidays where I had uh, I had tweeted that. I wish that the China issue uh, could be framed by the Republican Party in any other way except for like being about the Uyghurs. And the Hong um, Kongers. Yeah. 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 Like, it's like that's what it's always about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think you see the, the neoconservatives starting to kind of, you know, like weave their way in like, oh yes, we can be a part of this China thing too. Um, by making it about all of this kind of international outcry over human rights issues um, or whatever. And like Joe said today. Uh, if 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 that's what we want our U.S. military to do, um, everyone better join up, grab yeah. their weapons. We're we're going to liberate everyone yeah. everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's it, and look, this is. This is the hard-nosed, realist approach that's necessary if we're going to have sanity in our foreign policy. Uh, I use this line at least like two times a week uh, from a former guest on our podcast, Micah Metacroft. Uh, He has a piece called China and Civic Piety that you can find on Amcanon, in fact. Um, And in it, I believe that the money line, as it were, is um, America owes a strategic counter to China, not to Uyghurs and Hong Kongers, but to the American people. Mm. It's as simple as that. Uh, Deindustrializing the Midwest and consigning generations of americans to poverty and destitution unless they're willing to uproot their entire lives and move to some liberal hellhole of a city um, is the primary thing that i worry about when it comes to china and frankly it should be what our ruling class worries about too well
1: generally it's a bad sign when the uh you know the the women who wear like i'm speaking kamala shirts and like vagina hats and like they just are really passionate about the European economic area are teaming up with generals of the US military to push some kind of foreign policy initiative like yeah. that generally seems to me to be a sign that w- what they're advocating for yeah. is a bad idea yeah <laughs> you i never was, want to see those two together
0: it's funny i was uh, i was twitter dming with a a more libertarian leaning foreign policy realist the other day And I said that, um, you know, the the libertarians, they tend to be a little bit weaker on the social issues. They don't care about them as much. But I said, the issue of realism and restraint is more likely to uh, gain market share on the right now than it ever has before, precisely because the military has become entirely co-opted as another tool of liberal hegemony. Um, You know the 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 you know the the telos of the American military at this point, uh, becoming more and more it appears to make sure that a pride flag is flying over Tehran is only a good thing uh, if you want the Republican Party to be the force in American politics fighting for realism and restraint, uh, because now it's a cultural issue and people who are very skittish about the culture war get very upset with me when I say this, but I think it's so important that we we frame the military in a right way that we thank military veterans for their service and their sacrifice and that's what we closed out the podcast with joe thanking him for um we were thankful today especially on memorial day but every day but it's important to realize that the ruling class of the military is not the rank and file of the people who sacrifice every day and they are utilizing the greatest force on earth as a tool to implement liberal cultural priorities
1: well yeah it's kind of like a three-sided venn diagram you know on the top you have um you know uh like military contractors, you know, the military industrial complex over here, you have people who just really love the UN and like that's their thing. And then you have the weird European trained people. Um, <laughs> and they're like their their space in the middle is, oh yes, we should go to war with China over Taiwan yeah. and and we should stay in the Middle East forever. And you know also we should be tr- teaching critical race theory to new soldiers, and it's yeah. just. It's unacceptable. We we shouldn't accept it. Um, it's it's evil. Uh, it runs contrary to all of the ideas um, that make up America, and
0: we shouldn't stand for it. That's right. Liberal empire is bad. You can learn more about it on Amcannon. Make sure to rate and subscribe. Ask questions. Uh, we, we want to answer your questions. Um, grill us if you think that we're wrong about something. We are more Than happy to be contested with Uh, and with that uh, we will see you guys next week thank you again as always for listening and have a great week moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center our podcast is produced and edited by jake mercier and jared cummings our intro music is a minor struggle by ryan serenich Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.